God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Everyone, welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I am Nicholas D'Augusto. I get a chance to have an amazing conversation about God and things related to God today. Let's not wait. Let's get into it. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Nick Masood to the show. Nick is an actor, writer, and improvisationalist. His TV credits are long and include shows like Lucifer, Ray Donovan, Madam Secretary, Designated Survivor, and two separate NCISs. He is also a member of the main company at Impro Theater, an exquisite L.A. improv company where they improvise full-length plays in the style of famous authors and genres. They're hilarious. Check them out if you're in town. In the meantime, welcome to the show, Masu. Thank you, thank you. Oh, buddy, it's so great to have you here. I'm pumped. All right. I know this may sound crazy, but this is actually my favorite topic. I, it's not crazy to me. I uh, Nick is one of these dear friends of mine who at this stage of my life, it sort of surprises me how long we've been friends, but... We met, uh, there's this group of guys that went to USC together, and um, for listeners of the show, uh, Rob Kirkovich is a part of this group, Will Greenberg's a part of this group, and, um, and I got the, I had the very good fortune of um, becoming friends of all of you through Patrick Adams many, many years ago now. I mean, it's, we're talking over 15 years. And so uh, I've always heard talk about you and your kind of like deep spiritual presence and um and you know whatever we're all buddies nick is just a funny dude uh he's also a, a wonderful villain in in uh fantasy football mm-hmm. and, yeah, and in life no <laughs> no, no hardly yeah. but no man you talk about it being a i've actually been really stoked to get to talk to you about this we've never really got a chance to sit down and like just you know jive about this sort of thing so um for those who've listened to rob kirkovich's episode which was my first episode rob mentions nick specifically by name and when he's talking about some of his early formative stuff and he's talking about the book the Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And I had never read the book at the time. I read 100 pages in preparation for talking to Masoo. If Masoo wants to bring it up, there's no pressure. But I'm just saying that uh, Masoo now comes recommended by Rob and by way of our friendship and all that stuff. But if you so want to know actually where that actually... Will Greenberg is the one who first mentioned it to me. Oh, really? See, I thought you were the the inciting I may be the one who, like, you know was uh, more deeply into it, or I, I don't know, you know, Greenberg, a uh, very insightful human being and has, you know, a relationship with this type of stuff, but I don't think he, um, like, expresses it a lot, you know what I mean? Whereas, yes. whereas I will, I love to talk about this, I love to go deep into it, um, and Eckhart Tolle is one of my many gurus that I, you know, look to, so I, but I remember hearing about it first from Greenberg. So it is kind yeah, of that's it's great. Just funny how it kind of circles around. So let's dive in. The first question is a real doozy. What did you have for breakfast? Oh, you know, I'm prepared for this question, Nick, because <laughs> uh, I, I did listen to a couple of your podcasts. Uh, well, first off, I did not have anything for breakfast. This oh, cup no. of coffee is my breakfast. You're uh, going to spin off into a caffeine high midway through. Well, this is this is You're my... going to reach different levels of consciousness this is in the middle we, of this. This is, this is my <laughs> spiritual elevation. My morning meditation is uh, an empty stomach and a large cup of coffee. It can get the job done. It does. It takes you to new heights. Um, but I want to tell you about another meal I had. Uh, wow. Go, 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 uh, go. So the other night I was, uh, I was in Atlanta sh- shooting a, a, a film. Oh, right on. And, uh, and I wanted some soul food. And uh, so I went out 
and uh, went to this all-you-can-eat soul food buffet. Amazing. And I, and I did it, Nick. I did it. I did it big time. Uh, I ate so much food. I'm trying to like imagine, because like when I think of soul food, I almost think of sometimes like just, just a regular entree almost feels like they're bringing you an all-you-can-eat plate. Yes. I mean, sometimes I feel like when I get soul food, there's like three sides, mm-hmm. they're mac and cheese, they're yep. black-eyed peas, they're uh-huh. mashed potatoes, or, yep. or yams, candied yams. Uh-huh. Had all that. <laughs> and and but, but to have a, an endless supply of that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what's so rank in, in order of the most consumed, what... What? Because with soul food, what's interesting is sometimes it's not the meat that is the most consumed. I know for me, when I when I like to eat soul food, I tend to eat a ton of candied yams and like mac and cheese. So the top three dishes in order of the most of it consumed that day of the, in that in that meal in that meal. When you went back to buffet, how often were you going back to the mac and cheese or that, or were you just eating like ribs? Well, look, I could only make it through two full plates. Smothered so, chicken. So, but but I will say the it would probably have been the mac and cheese and the country fried steak. Yeah, chicken, um, country fried steak. I mean, I'm from Texas, oh, and man. it's been a long time since I've had a fried piece of steak. Oh man, <laughs> breaded and fried. I grew up in Nebraska. It's not quite as like quintessentially that as Texas is, but. But uh, Nebraska's, I grew up with eating chicken fried steak. We used to call it chicken fried steak. You yeah, chicken it con- fried steak. Country fried steak. Country fried steak. Yeah. Or, yeah. I always loved the chicken fried steak. Yeah. I love, no I love the name, you just, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know how you fry chicken? Fried steak like that. Yeah, just pound out a piece of meat and do the same thing. Um, but here's what happened, Nick. I loved it. It was delicious. Everything I ate, they had fried green tomatoes, which I never had before. Tons of food. I mean, the collard greens were delicious. Mm. Even the, the the stewed cabbage was delicious. I wouldn't get into that, but cool. But last night, but that night, I went to sleep and and I woke up uh, two hours later in um, an immense amount of pain. Yeah. And, uh, and I and normally like that, you know, I get in my older age, it's like it's too much salt late at night or something like that. So I drank some water. I took a, a Zantac, you know, which is an antacid, and I still couldn't go to sleep. Oh no. And uh, something else was in that food. <laughs> oh, no. It wasn't enough instantly to, Instantly, like, I thought about digestion, man. I mean, at 39, I instantly thought about digestion. Okay, go on. And so so what I like to do when I can't... Now, I got a job the next morning. I got a, I got a call time on set, you know? This was and, not well thought out. No. And, uh, <laughs> and I couldn't go back to sleep. So what I like to do sometimes, I like to put on some audio or something to fall back asleep. So I put on your podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. So from... Well, that's nice. I made it through two full episodes and still couldn't fall back asleep. Well, I'm sorry. I would like to think my dulcimer tones <laughs> would put you back to sleep and calm you. I actually wouldn't be I wouldn't be upset at all. Have you ever heard of this band called The Stars of the Lid? Mm-mm. It's this awesome band that I was, you know, hip to. I was made hip to by some friends over a decade ago. And I mean, like the name, once you like think about it for just a second, like it's about... It's about when the stars you see when you close your eyes. You know, like the lights that play as you, like the mm, different light mm-hmm. formations as you close your eyes. Uh-huh. So that's their where their name is from. And essentially, like they're a band that wrote music for you to sleep to. Oh, I saw them live once, and he, they put you to sleep. <laughs> you know, it was amazing. I went to the Echo to like watch them, and I brought a girl. I was I didn't wasn't dating. She was just a friend of mine at the time. But but we were both like at the end of it like yawning and it was like we should just get out of here like this is a problem and I, I could even see them laughing you know but anyway this is my way of saying whenever I have this problem I listen to Stars of the Lid oh maybe I, maybe I gotta so next time you have a severe indigestion attack put on Stars of the Lid Stars of the Lid um, I'm glad you listened to my show I'm glad you enjoyed it and I'm glad you're here you, it didn't drive you away from the show so no, that's no, good no I listened to Will and Nikki which I thought was a nice combo pack to listen to a cool. married couple talk about their different views 
on spirituality and religion and and the decision whether or not to mitzvah their their child. Uh, yeah, you get like let you get like let in right into like the, what's going on at the house, like in between meals or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's great, man. They were so game and they're so sweet, as you know. Um, all right, man. Well, now we jump into the uh, non-sarcastic meat of the show. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Uh, well, I mean, uh, from birth, before birth, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I, I, my family is very religious, um, and I was born into the, uh, what's called the Antiochian Orthodox Church, which is basically like Greek Orthodox, but, uh, we're Middle Eastern, we're Arabic, you know? Okay. So other people, they may I've call I've never it, heard the name Antiochian. Yeah, you maybe you've heard Eastern Orthodox, or you've heard Syrian Orthodox. I have heard Eastern Orthodox. You know, but Antiochian, because that's Antioch, the city of Antioch is where our archdiocese is. Ah. Um, now that's in Turkey, and the government of Turkey no longer allows our patriarch to be in Antioch. So that's, wow. a, that's a fun little thing that, you know, Middle Easterners have to deal with. Um, I have a dear friend of mine who's from... Uh, uh, my my manager is from Jordan, um, mm. and he was uh, he was born there. You know, moved when he was eight with his family. So many of his and he was the youngest. So many of his family you know, spent much of their life there. But they're Christian, and they moved partly because of the persecution that they were suffering in Jordan. Um, you well, know, there's well, just a, it, it, whether you want to call it persecution, you can certainly call it prejudice. Yeah, it's persecution too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it all depends on what time period you're talking about, but most. Christian Arabs, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of Christian Arabs now live in America or elsewhere because, you know, because a lot of the the governments were not very kind to them. Yes. Um, And there's a huge, huge population in America, and we have conventions every year. Oh, wow. Um, And I used to go to them growing up. Uh, I was an altar boy. Um, My uh, my parents are very active in the church. I have uh, my great-grandfather, Father Spiridon Masu, was the first priest in Canton, Ohio, back in the early 1900s. Oh, wow. So, so, you're, so was, he, um, was he born in the States, your grandfather? No, he, he was not. That's my great-grandfather. Oh, I'm sorry, your great-grandfather. And his son was not born in the States either. They emigrated when, he, when my grandfather was 18. Um, so your grandfather was 18. So, so his formative years were spent in... Syria. Syria. So you're a... Syrian Arabic I'm descent. Half, I'm half, I'm part. My father is Syrian. My mother is half Lebanese, half Palestinian. Okay, wow. Full-blooded Arab. Uh, wow. And, uh, and full Christian on both sides, on all sides. So. Wow. That's a, that's a really fascinating mix. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, some of these things I knew about you, but a lot of this stuff I've never talked to you about. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and obviously, I mean, you, doesn't, you don't have to walk more than two steps to you hear those countries and what's going on there now and like just how deep the, the, the modern consciousness is about like what's going on in that region of the world. You have a lot of, you have a lot of, uh, emotional connection to this story, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, um, but, yeah. yeah, that's, uh, that's, int- it's, oh, it's fascinating when I find people that have a personal connection to what's going on out there. Um, from- and I, and strangely, I think like the Arab Christian world is a very sort of underrepresented, misunderstood world. Um, I can totally imagine that because I wouldn't really know much about it had I not met my manager. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you—it's you, so funny because when you when you tell people that you're Arab Christian, they're they like they think it's an oxymoron. Sure. They don't understand it, and then you explain to them, well, where did Jesus live? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where yeah. was Jesus from? <laughs> yeah, he was from the Middle East. It's not that far out of your, you know, he wasn't from Italy. I'm sorry, he's not from he's not from Europe, right? Uh, but he was from the Middle East. And then they start to go, oh, okay, I guess, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, but yeah, but I, you know, I have, 
uh, several cousins who are priests. Um, so religion in my family is, is just deeply rooted. My mother's great uncle was the archbishop to the last czar of Russia. Wow. So, I mean, deeply rooted religion in my, in my family that I don't think I can deny. Like, I, in my life, I don't really, I don't think I can accurately call myself a Christian at this point based on my beliefs. Um, I think I'm a Christian by Jesus' standards, but maybe not by modern church's standards. Um, but I cannot deny my sort of orthodox culture and heritage, and I don't think I ever want to. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I completely understand. I, I, uh, well, I should say I completely understand the sense of having been deeply rooted in a religious upbringing and culture. Um, I don't obviously don't want to imply that I understand your situation, but I, uh, because my father, so I am Italian, right? So like we're, you know, I come from the Roman Catholic thing. It's like, it's just, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's in the blood to be like pumping the Catholic Church and being super stoked about the Pope. Oh, yeah. And um, and so, you know, and I've talked about this, obviously, uh, when you speak to people of Jewish heritage, um, the idea of talking about Jewish culture is very, very strong. And oftentimes, as I've been talking to people, it's equally as strong, if not stronger, than their actual belief in a deity or in, in a god. Um, there are many Jewish atheists. But what we're talking about is something that's, it's, not a parallel, but it's similar, uh, which is that, you know, how do you extricate the way you were raised, the formation, like your early framework, like the filters with which we are introduced to the world? And something that you talked about at the beginning is something I totally, totally empathize with is that idea that I was introduced the idea of Jesus and, and a Catholic God, Christian God, before I even had memory. So that's the deepest primal roots in my brain. Is it close to primal as my genetics is like the idea that people were driving these ideas into me before I even knew I was having these ideas. And so how can you not in some way always feel connected to that? Mm -hmm. Especially when you are talking about, you have people that are, are the priests of, they took on leadership roles. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure they were discussing leadership ideas in, in the family intimately around dinners and things like that. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have a desire to become a priest? Yeah, yeah. There yeah. was a time in my life where uh, I don't. I, it must have been like somewhere in the ages of like I don't know, eight to twelve. You know, somewhere sure. in those er, like some of the early formative I, I had a similar thing, periods yeah. where somebody said, "Well, what do you want to be?" And you're like, "Oh, I want to be a priest." Um, I think becoming an actor is pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 yes, I, I, I'm with you on this. In hindsight, I'm like, oh, I could see the parallels. I just wanted people to listen to me talk. <laughs> yeah, I was like, everybody's really into watching this guy. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask is, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, do they have the vow of chastity? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, so, so that's the same. You want, to know the, you want to know the difference between Orthodox and Catholic? Well, yeah, I mean... Because we're very similar. Yeah, no, no, talk about it. I have some historical understanding of this, but I want to talk about it. I mean, we're, we're the most please talk about it. We're the most similar of any Christian faiths, but we have a couple key differences. In fact, we were one church until, you know, the Great Schism... Yeah, I, I want you to talk more about it. I'm not going to be able to talk about it as well as you're about to, but I have some vague understanding of when this split. Up. I got like a, I gotta do like a, a two-minute nut, nutshell for you. Fantastic. You know? So, uh, you know, at the beginning there was one church. It was called the Catholic Church because uh, Catholic means universal. 
Um, uh, there was no pope. There was several patriarchs, uh, and there was a patriarch in Rome, and there was a patriarch in Constantinople. There was probably others, but those are the two main for the story. And uh, um, and what they what they considered it to be is that there's no man could be the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, so you have a you know where one among equals is your patriarchs as a council, and that kind of existed for a thousand years. Now, I'm sure over a thousand years, you know, people like in their own regions started to develop their own cultures or whatnot. And uh, the guy in Rome started to change a couple of things. He changed a word in the Nicene Creed, which really kind of changed sort of a a whole belief structure. Um, He changed it from from to with or, or opposite. I don't know. I can't remember which way it was. Um, but then he changed a couple other things. And then the guy in uh, Constantinople says, like, hey, man, you can't do that. You can't change this stuff. We've had this stuff for a thousand years. This was set by the uh, ecumenical councils. And uh, the guy in Rome says, no, 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 well, I'm the head of the church because Peter was in Rome. And, and Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock upon which I'll build my church. He's the head of the church. Therefore, who's ever in Rome is the head of the church. Mm. And he goes, no, 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 no man could be the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And then they excommunicated each other. Wow. So then everybody who followed the guy in Rome carried the name Catholic, and that spread to Europe and, and to the West. And everybody who followed the guy in Constantinople took the name Orthodox, which means the right way, oh, and fantastic. that ended up spreading east. It went to Eastern Europe and then into Russia. It's a good place to take a break. We just got uh, historically centered on where we are. <laughs> we'll, we'll go back to, um, you know, Masu talking about being a priest after the break, and we'll get more, uh, we'll, we'll ramp up into modern times. All right, I'll see you after the break. Hey, everyone, we're back with Nick Masu. And uh, one of the things that I we sort of skated over from the first section was that Nick talked about being a very devout um, child and young man in the church and that he has these very strong influences from his, his father and parents and grandparents of being religious leaders. But you also talked about growing out of the church. So what is that... Like, what was that process for you? What was, where was it fraught? And when was it, and is it still fraught? You know? Well, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know if I can pinpoint the exact moment, but, uh, you know, as I think about it, probably was when I decided to become an actor and came out to California. And uh, I think uh, my, uh, my mother uh, was very devout, maybe sometimes... To a fault, I think you could be so devout in some of these uh, religions, especially Christianity, to a point where it makes you ang- anxious that something is, you know, going to send you to hell or send your children to hell or, or whatever it is. That sort of fear of damnation can really cause uh, a lot of worry and anxiety that I think can actually be physically detrimental to people. Right. Uh, At best, it comes out in like uh, people making self-conscious jokes. You know, about it like, I'm just a guilty, I just feel guilt, I'm a Catholic, or mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, I have an enormous amount of anxiety, I'm, you know, I just fear God. And, mm-hmm. But then at worst, obviously, it's the constant, the constant fear that the devil's over your shoulder, or that hell is just a step away, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, 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 we don't want to get into this too much, but my mom, who passed away a couple of years ago, I really do think at the end of her life, her fear of going to hell made those last days of her life worse, Aww. which I was like... 
It's very sad. You're an amazing woman. She's like the nicest human being, lived a very good life, you know, raised three boys on, or four boys on love, and uh, there was no chance. If there is a hell in this world, there's no chance she yeah. was going there. But she still had that in the back of her mind, deeply rooted, like the, as a sort of like a control module. Did you find yourself trying to comfort her in that time a lot? Yeah, you know, well, she she or reinforce for she, her. She 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 died of a severe case of dementia. So you know, oh. there's only so much rational comforting you can do. Yes, I did play some some church soundtracks that brought ease to her, which was really really That's great. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, and uh, um, but but anyway, so uh, so I started to to uh, uh, question certain things about Christianity uh, in. in and my relationship to it, and and what what does it mean for uh, you know Jesus to be the Son of God, and all this sort of stuff, and and probably because I'm out here in California, and I'm you know you know reading new books, and you know maybe trying a few different um, <laughs> mind expansive drugs and things of that nature. We've talked about that on we, this show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I listened to Will Greenberg's podcast. Um, but but I really do think that it didn't come from any of that. It came from my intense curi- uh, curiosity into, or actually when I say curiosity, my intense sort of like um, desire to know like, well, if I'm going to go to church, wh- what is it that I'm going, what, what is it that, that, that I am stating that I believe in? When you take communion, which, you know, as a, sure. as a Catholic, you take communion, you are basically taking communion because you accept the beliefs of this church. And so I respect that very much, and I don't want to take communion if I don't actually have those beliefs. Um, so my mother calls me. Um, I think maybe I was 21. No, no, actually I was 20. No, I didn't actually know where I was. I was 22, 23 at the time. You graduated. I had just graduated. Okay. And she's like, why, you know, why don't you go to church? I mean, like, this has really been bothering her. You know, at the end of every phone call with my mother to, you know, to the day she passed was, I'm praying for you. Yeah, I'm like, well. mom, I'm doing just fine. Okay, you don't need to pray for uh-huh. me. But it was just her way of like, I'm praying for you. Everything's going to work out. And da, da, da. So anyway, so she, she was very concerned. She said, why aren't you going to church? And I, said, and I thought about it. I was like, do I really want to get into this with my mom right now? Because normally me and my brothers, we just be like, oh, you know, busy or whatever it may be. Give some excuse or whatnot. But I said, okay, well, let's get into it. You want to get into it, mom? Here we go. I go, well, here's the thing, mom. I just... I just don't know if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, my God. Wow. And you went she, right for it. And she just... You're like, let's get into it. And you're just like, I okay, she, so let's get to the core of it. I think she might have had a, a mild heart attack right there on the wow. phone. Wow. And I said, oh, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, she starts crying. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, I can imagine her. I don't know if that's true, but... Man, well, I mean... It's such an earth-shattering thing to share with someone who lives so, lives so intimately with the thought as being real. Yeah. And so I said, well, let, let me, and I tried to make it better. I said, let, let me say what I actually mean. What I mean is, I don't know what Jesus being the son of God means to me. You know, thinking that that might make things better. <laughs> but no, it didn't. Because it's a little too yeah. intellectual, I think, for her to kind of connect with. Yeah. Uh, it still means the same thing to her. Right. right. Um, and, but see, to me, I was like, okay, no, I'm still trying to understand. Like, that's where I'm at. I'm trying to understand what Jesus being the Son of God means to me. I can tell you now what it means to me. I mean, I've, I've done the work and I've gone through it. Uh, but my mom freaked out so much that she had my father's cousin, Father Michael Masu, give me a call. Now, this 
this event might have. I mean, the, the fact that you have so many priests with your last name is I have three just priests who are cousins. Yeah. Now, priests in our church can marry, so that makes it more of a possibility to have familial relationships with No, see, priests. this is what I was asking about earlier. I thought they took the vow of chastity. No, this is what I was asking. If they oh, took oh, the vow oh, of chastity. Oh, oh, oh I, I thought you meant, like, no premarital sex. I don't, no, <laughs> I don't no, know no, why no. I interpreted it that Well, way. look, everything. So, so that's what I was wondering is, I didn't think so, but I didn't know. So in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they actually share that with, like, Lutheranism or something, where, where they're al- they have allowed... When did that happen in history? Uh, I think it was... I think, around that schism? I think it was... I, I don't know. We have this to look is, it up. But okay. my guess would be it was before the schism, that that was always the case. But I that don't... That they let them... That, that the, the priests on in the Eastern Orthodox, in the Anti- Antiochian Church... All Orthodox. <clears throat> all Orthodox... Greek, can, can marry. Russian, yeah. Can have kids. As long as you... I mean, look, priests in the Roman Catholic had kids too, but they didn't acknowledge them. Yeah. That's the difference. You can, <laughs> you can get... You can get married as long as you become as long as you're married before you become a priest. You have to be married before you become a priest. Before you become a priest. So, so if you so if, if you're, you're a priest, you can't get married once you become a priest. Or once once you're a priest, you can't get married. Then you have to take a vow of chastity. Yeah. So so there's a lot of people who are deacons who are just waiting to find a woman before they become a priest. And then there's that, that moment. That is some really interesting political stuff. Yeah. I mean, come on. And with this these one rules. guy, I remember. Oh, this guy he was so that great. Such a ridiculous I think rule. Was, I think his name was Deacon Tommy. I mean, he was so great, but he just, he just couldn't find a woman. And then eventually, he was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And that, but now he's a bishop. Bishops can't marry. Okay. So, so once you do that, like I think the people who become priests who don't have wives say, well, let's just go all the way with it, and they start to move up the ranks past that. Can you you can't become a bishop if you have been if you are married? No. If you entered in as a priest when you were married, you don't get to rise no, no, that's above it. being a priest. No, that's it. Yeah. If you want to be a bishop or an so archbishop, so this is how they patriarch. sort of skated around it. Like the 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 executive ranks have to be chaste, but below that, ah, let's just let the communities become priests and stuff. Well, I think somebody had the foresight to realize how important it is for a priest to have a family if they want it. Because we yeah. can see what, what can happen in the Roman Catholic Church when you don't allow that to happen. You can see the, the, some of the you know yeah, repercussions of that. Yeah, yeah, man. You know, okay, so I don't so know who had that foresight or what, but... This is a fascinating subject. Glad we, got, got, <laughs> glad we cleared that up. Um, but let's get back to now the deeper subject. So, you were talking with your mom, and so, so and she had she had my, my she had Father Michael call me, who's, okay. a, who's an amazing an amazing uh, priest who has his own family, um, and he called me. He talked to me, and I you know, and he's he is an intellectual. He is somebody who I can talk to and ha- and have this sort of discourse about. And he said to me something that like you know was so wonderful. Um, he basically said, "Well, Nick, I would think as an artist." you, above anybody, would know who God is. And I said, yes! He goes, yes, your, your sort of relationship to your art is your, it, that your relationship to that flow is your relationship to God. And I was like, oh, Michael, thank you. That's what my instincts were telling me. Thank you so much. And, and, you know, and he really helped me through this. Well, when I went back <laughs> and I told that to my mother, it was not the response she wanted to hear. Right. She didn't understand that. And I th- <laughs> Think I still don't know, but I think it might have caused a rift between her and him. And and I, you know, and I never, I tried for years to be able to talk to my mom about it, but she just no, no. And so I don't know what it was. But did your family cut that part of the family out of like family? Functions? We were never like super close. Like it was never like we were constantly. You like, weren't first cousins. You're second. Or my third parents. Cousins or something. My father was first cousins with him, but okay. still, it wasn't like. 
we were, you know, I didn't grow up hanging out with them. They, we knew they were there, and we sometimes right. see very them. big functions, weddings yeah. or something. You yeah. see them, but that's it. And I wanted him. Uh, I wanted him at my wedding, and and I mean, I hope no one ever hears this because you know I don't want to you know. Betray well, it's me. only a radio show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, like no one in that side of my family. Hears this. But I don't think I don't. I think it was like I. I just knew that like my mother. It wouldn't. My mother wouldn't approve. Wow. And so I just, just didn't want to go there, and I never figured out why. And it's a really crying shame because I really feel like he had a huge impact on me spiritually, and I think it was something my mother couldn't understand. And, but Wow. No, I mean, that's complicated, and it's, uh, it's rich. It's one of the reasons I love this conversation is that these really – it's uh, so much of this, and I won't – Whatever we're gonna get back on track in a second, but it's just so much about how do we live? How does it? How does all of this stuff play out practically in our lives? All, already, we've talked a number of times about. I mean, at best, you could call them like you know, fascinating is a word I tend to lean on too much, but also peculiar, idiosyncratic, or detrimental rules that we set up for ourselves, and it happens because of things like this. Someone in a family, and every family has these things. You know, there's a schism, right? <laughs> Now, you know, if that happened a thousand years ago, like these families haven't spoken for a thousand years and we don't even know why anymore. You know, things like this is what we we create these rules for ourselves based on how we need to justify our views of our God and all that stuff, man. So it's really great. This is juicy stuff. Okay, so I'm sorry, though, on some levels too, man, because you're talking about some of the you're obviously saying, you know, your connection to your mother was very loving and beautiful, but there were some there were some struggles in there at different times. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically surrounding this issue, I couldn't, I could never convince her. But although I do think she knew in her core, I mean, she was uh, for somebody who you know had a had a bit of the the dogma of religion restricting her thought. She was a person who had unconditional love for her her family. Yes. And so, you know, um, but I don't think I ever really could convince her that, uh, uh, of my point of view, I think eventually I stopped. Uh, sure, but, I couldn't do it either. You, you know? know, I mean, it's who she is, right? I mean, and I, I ran into that with, with my family too. And, and there's a, I'm sure she came, as you were expressing, I'm sure she loved you completely as who you were, had her own relationships to what your choices were related to her viewpoints. And my parents are the same, you know, like we are at a point of, of understanding that there are certain things we we don't need to make the other person believe a certain thought about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they believe it. They're very devout, you know, and it's it's an anchor of their whole lives. How could I tell them that that's not... Yeah, how could you take that away from yeah, somebody? Yeah, I'm not trying to. It's, you know? I couldn't, you know? I mean, it's real to them, and they can't take it away from me. But, uh, but um, so I, I... So anyway, sorry brief distraction. Um, my, what I'm saying is, is that my parents and I have reached a beautiful level of underst- of understanding each other in that point, in, in this point of view and understanding where the boundaries are. But, uh, did you get that? Where did you get there with your father? What's your father's story? My father is fascinating. So my, so he is, uh, how do I say? He is a, he is a unaware, or that's not the right word. He is a Zen. He's a Zen master who doesn't realize he's a Zen master. You know what I mean? Like he is very. 
in his own nature, he's very easy, go with the flow, doesn't allow, allow a lot of things to bother him or get in his way, but, you know, would never subscribe to Buddhism or anything like that, you know. Um, but he lives, the, he just kind of lives that life inherently. I mean, he's got his own anxieties and its own quirks or, you know, or, or whatever, but he's not somebody, he doesn't, he doesn't look at, like, getting into conflict over something like this with his kids as a... Uh, as something that is productive or something that's desirable, it doesn't matter that much to him. He has his own relationship. He still goes to church on his, you know, on his own. He still prays. He still, you know, does his stuff. But he doesn't ever want to, you know, get into that with us or doesn't view his sons any differently or, you know, doesn't have that sort of, you know, uh, tied relationship to religion the way my mother did. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to control the situation in any way. No. He's he's totally respectful of different points of view and mm-hmm. takes it in. One hundred percent. Yeah, right on. Um, so, so your your growth period in this, where you have to kind of like define your your place in relationship to your family, is mostly in is finding sort of that dissonance with with your mother's side your father's always kind of like sort of let you was he fascinated by the things that you i never talked about this stuff with him oh okay yeah i don't know if he would be like i don't know if he would even engage like i don't even think it interests him it's interesting like uh, like to get intellectual about religion i don't i've never maybe i should try yeah although i will say oh this is interesting what am i talking about in his now in his life in his later life right now after and like leading up to my mom's passing and after my mom's passing, he is strangely open in a way that you would ah. I would never have thought before. And I'm throwing shit at him. I, I, so I take it all back. I have I don't I just don't talk to him about it like an intellectual way, but I just th- slowly throw some some, you know, some spiritual stuff at him. And he's totally open to it. Wow. And interested. And the other day he called me and he goes, I had this dream. Can you. You know, I, I, just before that, I had told him about dream analysis and how you can, you know, your subconscious sending your conscious a message. And he calls me up and he goes, Nick, I had this dream. What do you think? What do you think it means? And so I, wow. so, I was like, okay. So I broke it down and, you know, I, you know, my mother was in the dreams, all sorts of stuff. And, and he was strangely open to it. And I, uh, I have a, a downstairs neighbor who she's very much uh, a, a very intuitive person. And her, her points of view are fascinating. Maybe somebody who you'd want to bring I on would show. love that, yes. And, I, and, I, and she does stuff that's like very hard to explain, but a lot of it's really like about under, you know, your subconscious speaking to your conscious mind. She's got ways to do it. And I was talking to my dad about it, going like, why am I talking to my dad about this? He doesn't care. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't know. But it all sunk in. And he's like, when he called about the dream, he's like, well, maybe we should ask Kate. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, you're open to that? Great. That's amazing. <laughs> So, yeah, man. Wow. Uh, is that, is it, uh, so obviously you're speaking about it in like a kind of, like in a thrilled way. It's got to be, um, not to, you know, obviously you, you reference we don't need to go down this road too far, but I have I had other dear friends of mine lose one of their parents. And one of the things they talk about is, is, is uh, seeing where the partnership between your parents is essentially severed at a certain point that the other partner doesn't get to, to fulfill the role for that other person. And so then that the, the, the parent that is still alive is looking outwards for, you know, where they can fulfill that role to some extent of the lost parent in their 
children and things like that. What you just talked about, I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off, but no. in a sense, what you just talked about was the core of his dream. Wow. It was the meaning of his dream that, that uh, uh, you know, Kate and I helped dissect it and, and went back to him on. But that, yeah, that he, that, what, that part of my mother, of what she carried for him throughout their life, he now had to get back for himself. Right. Right. Well, you do. You do create. I mean, you're new in your marriage. I'm new in my marriage. And who knows where we're what we're going to learn and how we will be interdependent on our wives over the next 30, 40 years. But uh, yeah, man, that's fascinating. That's cool. I mean, look, it's not a situation that you would ask for. You know, you don't want to lose a parent, but it's a beautiful thing that you get to develop this. Here's a beautiful thing that comes out of pain is this new relationship. And that's Mm -hmm. something that's that seems special. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you, your brothers don't have, you're all kind of the, in similar ways. Like, do any, did any of them stay very devout? No, I would probably say, none of, none of them stayed uh, devout at all. Um, I, I would probably say that I am the most spiritual out of all of them. And that's what I tried to explain to my mother. I said, look, out of all your sons, I'm the one who still thinks about and has a relationship with God, you know. I hear you. Uh, one of my brothers is close to, to me, I think like 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 we had the same philosophy, and I think he was a big influence on a lot of my sort of opening up to the world. But my other two brothers, they probably don't give it; they don't wouldn't even care to even talk about it. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. It's fascinating, right? How a group of siblings all takes that on in different ways. So, when do you have? Do you have a eureka moment sometime in your? You know. My brain wanted to say early 20s, but it doesn't have to be located in any year. You know, I mean, we talked about formative experiences when you were young, talked about you becoming, like, strong enough to engage with your mother. You know, you feel like you have enough articulation about what you're going through to to, to finally kind of speak to your mother on an adult level in your very early 20s. Do you have a eureka moment beyond that that sort of speaks more to... Um, where you are now, or do you have a an overarching viewpoint now th- that you identify with? Yeah, I mean, I, I have. I mean, my sort of log of spiritual isms runs pretty deep, so I'll try to give a couple of a couple of them along the way. Um, one thing, like based on the conversation that we just had, like the result, of, you know, of like what is Jesus being the Son of the God mean to me? Right. I do you have an answer? That. I do yeah. have an answer for that, and basically, what that is, my little nutshell is is. Uh, I don't deify Christ or personify God. So, which is very fundamental to Christian. Sure. You know, but I don't think it's fundamental to Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? I think it's the sort of church's way of explaining things is let's personify God so that we can understand it. Well, I don't, I think it's misleading. Um, It may be helpful in one sense, but I think it's very misleading. And I think Jesus said, I am the son of God and you are my brothers and sisters. So if you're, that means we're all the sons and daughters of God. You know what I mean? That's right. And there's no, he's not, he's not, his relationship to God isn't any uh, different than ours. He may have invested his time and energy into it. He may have cultivated it more and had a a stronger sense of it than the average person does. But it doesn't mean that we're any less capable of that. And I think that's what he died to teach us. And I think the fact that where we're at now, I think if he was alive today, he might shake his head and be like, God. A lot of you guys really missed the point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I died for this. <laughs> you know, um, so I think that's a, that's kind of a nutshell of like what my Christian uh, beliefs are. Now, everything else is constantly evolving because we'll never know. And I think the key to figuring it all out is to realize you'll never have it all figured out. 
And I think once you do that, you kind of surrender to the mystery. And I love the mystery. And the more you surrender to the mystery of things, the more open you are to possibility. And if, and I think one of the things that like my mother was afraid of, and I think a lot of people who are devoutly religious are afraid of, they're afraid of being open to other perspectives because I don't think they feel like they have the center or the strength to be able to discern what is truth and what isn't. Um, now, truth is an interesting thing as well. I, only, I, don't think, I think all truth is relative, except there's one absolute truth, and that is God. Um, we can get into yeah, well, you're God gonna, and what, what that is. Yeah, I and we will. We'll slowly you know, get into I that, use that want to go word. there. I use that word. Not everybody uses that word. I, I'm glad that you use that word. I think it's important to use that word, but I don't use it the way that a lot of religious people might use it. I use it maybe more the way, the way people who call themselves spiritual would. Um, so, uh, so what was I saying? Oh, I lost my track. Before well, you were speaking about, um, you, so you were, dis- you were leaving your description of your relationship to Christianity in general, and you were moving oh, on oh, to... being open. Yeah. So, so now, in this sort of like place of openness, I think when you like cultivate a sense of groundedness within yourself or a relationship to God or a relationship to the universe or a relationship to the other or the non-physical or whatever it is, when things come up, when you are exposed to things... You have a sort of like uh, barometer inside you or a compass that, that says, that, uh, is, this, this, is there something here? Like you can feel it within you whether you, it's in tune with your sense of the universe. And I think that, then that, you start to pull from that. You start to go, oh, I'm in tune with that. Like maybe when you read the first hundred pages of Eckhart Tolle, there were things in there that resonated with you. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, I see, and I'm going to use this word. I don't think it's the right word, but I see truth in it. Um, I, I feel in, a, in alignment with it. I feel attuned to it. And I think that's how you know, oh, there's something there. Mm. And you'll never know the final answer of all of it. And as I go through life, I continually go through new stages and I was kind of in a dormant stage the past, I don't know, how many, however many years of not advancing in my spirituality and maybe avoiding paying attention to it. But now I'm in a new phase where there's new information coming to me, information that, you know, if true, just rocks everything I ever conceived of, but is in 100% in alignment with everything I was exposed to a long time ago but didn't understand. Well, that is a pregnant pause to take. That's a pregnant place to take a pause. Uh, we will uh, be back as we get into some really the, the deep meat of this uh, right after the break. Thanks. All right, we're back. Uh, with the third and final section here with Nick Masu, and I'm stoked to get into it. So, Nick, one of the things that, uh, I mean, it was, I'm sure anybody listening felt it, I certainly felt it, was you referenced if true. So I, I, I you please lead me into where, what this new, what is your new level of information that you're receiving? I'm, I have some speculations on maybe some of where the source or catalyst is coming from, but what does that mean? And, and what does it mean to, to ask whether or not you're receiving something that you're not entirely sure is true? Mm-hmm. Well, you, so I think when you remain open and something comes to you 
that you don't understand, it, if you're open to it, uh, it plants a seed that maybe will, will be watered or sprout years later. You know, but if you if you're closed off, that seed never gets planted. So so and sometimes you may forget you forget that seed got planted or whatever it is. But most often when you hear things that are like outside your your sort of realm of understanding or realm of experience, you're you know, usually you shut it down or, you know, you don't understand it or it doesn't make sense to you. But I've always, for whatever reason, remained open. You know, like you asking this question of your guests, like, what's your relationship to spirituality? I, I did the same thing, you know, in my early 20s because I was very curious. And then I heard all sorts of different perspectives and ideas. And and I never said yes or no to anybody, but I, I received it and just let it be. Let it and let it like I like I was saying, like, what is my sort of attunement to it? What is my resonator saying to me? You know, one of my early uh, gurus was uh, Alan Watts. And you don't know Alan Watts? I don't. Oh, by all means, get on, get on that YouTube. Uh, people have taken his lectures and put it on YouTube with images and all sorts of stuff. I actually don't know if YouTube is the best way to go deep into Alan Watts, but it's a great introduction to it. Sure. Um, he was a philosopher in the, uh, and a theologian in the 60s and 70s, who, or 50s, 60s, 70s, in that, in that range. Yeah, yeah who brought, helped bring Eastern philosophy to the Western world and was able to explain it in a way that is digestible, humorous, very dry sort of English humor, uh, and uh, spiritually awakening. Just in listening to him, you can feel things open up. But very often he will say things, and it's very much in like Eastern uh, religions or Eastern spirituality, where they say something to you that you don't understand intentionally in order to break you open. And a lot of that stuff, you know, you when you first hear it, you're like, ah, I don't know exactly what he means by it, but I know it's resonating. And then at some point it makes sense. You know, however, if you continue to explore and continue to go in. So, um, so, so some things along the way, you know, I've been looking at and trying to make sense of. And one of the things that I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of you know, but again, I'm always open to being 100% wrong. But at this point, I feel like I have a good understanding of what God is, or at least what God is to me. And I subscribe to uh, Eckhart Tolle's definition. I just feel like it's the the most succinct definition, which is the one life beneath all forms of life. I mean, it's just the one thing that is constant, the one thing that is absolute, the one thing that has no judgment, that is that just is. And that's life. And life is something that is a form of creation constantly being created. And what is the purpose of it is more of it. That's it. You know, everything else is surrounded by it. And to me, when you connect with that, you are connecting with God. And by doing so, you live a more fruitful life. Um, so I feel like I had a good relationship with that. Uh, but there's a new thing that I'm kind of coming to a relationship with, which is the relationship to ourselves and the God within ourselves, and, and, and not just, so I used to think, well, the God within myself is that life within myself. But I think there's something even deeper than that, um, and I, I don't, I'm not going to explain it very well, and I'm still learning it. And hey, man, it's all it. good. But this sort of understanding of spirit, soul, or whatever you may want to call it, that, can, that thing within us that maybe is consistent, that does that was there before our physical form and it is there after our physical form leaves. 
Um, is there is that true, or, or or are we just all physical? I don't know. It does feel in some of my experiences lately that there is a part of ourselves that um, that kind of is in that sort of reincarnation realm, you know. Mm. And I've been open to the reincarnation realm. I never went deep to try to figure it out, understand it. But again, it's one of those things that, like, oh, I heard it. I'm open to it. I'm not going to say no to it, but I don't understand it, so I'm not going to say that that's what I believe in. Right. Um, and I still don't necessarily understand it. And what I'm talking about, I don't know if it's related to to like a Hindu reincarnation or not. Maybe it is. But this idea that, and if you hear it from different angles, that we are spirits who come and take a physical form to have an earthly experience to grow and learn and become deeper in our consciousness. And then we take that with us and we come back again when our time when our time is right, but that there is another realm for us. Maybe that's what they call heaven. I don't know, but there is another realm for us. If this is true, there is another realm for us where we are of that spirit realm. And that realm, apparently, from my understanding, is here with us now. It's just a different dimension that we cannot access without following, you know, without investigation and, and, and following and getting there. Um, that that that's where I'm at. There's a guy I can't remember his name, God, he, but he's got a uh, a sort of avatar theory to explain this. And he was like a physicist uh, from the 70s, or started starting at that time. He's still alive today, but he also started to do studies in consciousness. So he's a great person to kind of like he really created this sort of metaphor where it's like you're playing a video game. So imagine your higher consciousness is you playing the video game. And your earthly consciousness is the avatar in the game. Okay. Higher consciousness is you playing the video game, and your earthly conscious is, is you in the game. Is you in the game. Great. Your avatar I'm in the game. I'm with you now. So the, your avatar in the game is not aware of your higher consciousness, who is mm. influencing your interactions in that game. Mm. Okay. So you know, the, the metaphor goes, you know, goes deeper, and he can get into it. Uh, but that idea that... The, you, here's the Nick D'Augusto earthly consciousness, but you also have a higher consciousness, which you are unaware of, but you could be made more aware of, mm. who is in, helping to influence and guide you along the way. But there's only so much it can do because it's not of the earthly realm. So it depends on your sort of relationship to it. And there's ways to access it and to, to cultivate that relationship. There are those who have a, um, a intuitive or some may call psychic ability to speak to people's higher consciousnesses or to relate to them. They all have different ways of doing it, becoming more you know, aware of that, of that realm. And hey, look, it could all be BS. <laughs> I don't know. But if it's true, the implications of it are, are uh, earth-shattering. Well, there's a lot of beautiful stuff there, and it's uh, really lovely to just be able to sit silently and listen to someone who clearly has done a lot of thinking and is in a really fun place of exploration. You speak about it in a in a uh, in a generous and open way. You're not speaking from an authoritarian point of view. Um, you're sharing your exploration. I guess you know there's a bunch of play, bunch of ways I could spin off this, but one of my questions is. You are being, I think, again, generous and saying, hey, is this true? Is this not? I don't know. But, I mean, do you think you can discover some sort of verification for these things? Or do you think at a certain point you're going to settle on a choice? 
Like, will you make, do you think that this, do you think that where you're going is, at what point does a person register something as true? Or, or can we also say that they made a choice to believe that that's true? So you could say that you're, you dig reincarnation, right? And you could just, this could be the next five years, you're like, no, man, this feels right. I have a hard time believing you're going to get any sort of empirical, uh, you know, verification that it's true. You, you may. I, I don't know. I, I, my guess is, judging from the breadth of human history, that we're not going to get a hardcore verification on it. But is there any way, do you think that the choice then becomes, or the experience becomes a choice, or a, a revelation to the person does, does this? Does, do you understand the sort of knife's edge I'm trying to walk yeah. here? Well, yeah. Well, so I think you know we have to be very. It's interesting the, the words we use, like we say the words like right or truth, uh, uh, because all of those things are relative to our own experience, veiled by you know our ego and all of our experiences in life. So we have to be very mindful of saying, "Oh, that's it," sure. or "Oh, that you know, oh, now I know." You know, but but like you say, a choice, I think, is an interesting word. I think the choice to have an open relationship to the non-physical. And that's the choice that that I would like to make. And I, I, you know, and I think that's the choice in which you can then go and investigate. And I'll tell you, there is a lot of empirical evidence, whether you choose to believe it or not, maybe something else. If you can find yourself having an experience with it, that's where then you can start to understand what it is to you. Empirical evidence of, when you say empirical evidence, are you referencing the non-physical world? Yes. Okay, yeah. 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 But when, what, is, what does empirical mean as well, right? You know, but there's I a mean, lot of people... Theoretically, it there's scientific, ton, you know... But there's tons tests. of people who are writing books, doing research. I mean, this is the thing that people have been studying the most for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, it's one of the things why people who are like, oh, I hate religion because they do so many bad things. I'm like, okay, well, maybe in one sense. But if you look at it, they've been studying spirituality for a very long time. There's definitely kernels of information in there that are valuable to take with you. Do not just shut it all off because people have distorted it and use it, use it to control others and politicized it. Mm -hmm. But if you've been studying the nature of human and their relationship to the other for thousands of years, there's, there's good stuff there to be mined and used. Sure. So, and I think there's a lot of people doing, doing that now um, on this level. I'm just starting to become aware of it. I've had a few experiences of my own to, in a relationship to a collective unconscious, which I've always kind of like from Carl Jung of thought, yeah, I like Carl Jung. It makes sense to me. I don't know what collective unconscious is, but I've had some experiences lately that tell me, no, it's very real and you can, can you tap talk into about it. What, what an experience, uh, what that means, or do your best to sort of define it for well, us? Well, so so this brings up my uh, my neighbor, Kate. Okay. I, I love her to death. Uh, I'm going to get her on the show. I should, know Kate, by the way. You know, oh, sorry, you know yeah, Kate Van Dyne. I don't know her really well, but I know her, and, I, I, and we're friendly, and I would love to have her on the show. Well, Kate has kind of tapped into this sort of uh, way of uh, consulting writers uh, on, in order to like access their creativity. And it's, it's a method that she uses for writing, but you can use it for all sorts of things. In fact, it's very common amongst child therapy. It's called sand play, where you have a sandbox empty, and then on the wall you have a bunch of figurines of all sorts of different types. Sure, I've seen this in my therapist's office. Yeah, great. You ask a question, and then... Uh, you look uh, at the figurines, at which ones want to be in the box. You like connect to this. You kind of like let go of judgment and kind of surrender to it. Kate really does a nice job of setting everything up for you. And then you go and you pull from here, from the from the shelves, and you create whatever 
needs to be created in the sandbox. And it's not an intellectual pursuit. It's something else. It's, a, it's an experience where you can tell which figurines want to be in. They like almost literally speak to you, and they tell you where they want to be. And, hmm. and, um, and then afterward, you look at it, and Kate helps you break it down and analyze it, and you get the answer to your question. Hmm. Well, if this is true that this is working in this fashion, what that means is there are archetypes within our sort of subconscious that is universal to, to all of us. And the answer to this question of what is this story already exists, and I just have to find it. Not that I have to create it. I have to find it. I have to be open to it. Hold on. What is this story? What do you, when you say the relationship to what is this story, I'm, what are you referencing when you I'm say what is this story? Because she's using it as a tool to help writers. I see. A specific story. I yeah, see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Specific to each individual that comes in. So I wrote a treatment, you know, I did with, with Kate's help and using this process. And I did like, you know, seven to ten different sessions with her. Um, and basically we were operating on the idea that this story is already there. I just have to find it. Not that I have to create it. And it happened, and it was there, and it was, it was you know, a truly magical experience. I mean, so many times I didn't know why I was pulling a piece and putting it down, um, but there the answer would come, and through exploration, and I, I do think I felt a sense of connection to a universal unconscious that exists, uh, you know, in, throughout humanity. And if that's true, that, what that, that's saying is that that higher consciousness I'm talking about, that's what you're connecting to, that that is a infinite you know, like no beginning, no end type consciousness that you can connect to that. And that what there that consciousness is there is to help guide you along your sort of human earthly journey. I don't know how much time we have left to talk about this, but I have one more question. We have five minutes to talk about this. And I'm sorry to peg you on this if this is, if you don't feel like you have the authority to talk too much about it. But my question that arises to me there is why, help me understand why Something from your unconscious, well, your subconscious, that is, you're utilizing to, you know, put the pieces into these places. This I understand, and then you find things. Why does that connect to a universal unconscious? Why can't it just be localized in your unconscious, your subconscious? That's a very good question, Nick. Um, I, and it's unfair to ask you of this no, because I know a... I know you're not an author- authority. Like you wouldn't call yourself an, an authority on this, and I should get Kate in maybe to ask to answer this. But I, the question that arises to me is. Why is your, why is she helping you connect to a larger unconscious? Well, let's just say, so he, here's something that, w- w- that, that leads me to that, an experience that leads me to that conclusion is that there were things on, you know, like little figurines on the wall that some of them were like symbols or, you know, maybe religious symbols or other types of symbols that I had no sort of relationship okay. to. I, I didn't know what they were. I, no mean, they had no meaning to me when I looked at them, but... They wanted to be in the same I see. And they wanted to be placed in a particular way. And then afterward, when Kate explained to me what their meaning is, or when I Googled, you know, what the meaning of this particular symbol is, I was blown away. That's interesting. So the form, so again, I'm, I'm, these, the words I have in my brain right now are Eckhart Tolle's words, which I think apply here. So con- he talks about all form is level of consciousness. So even rocks are conscious because they have a certain, they exist. So what you're talking about is there are, there are images that, that have been imbued in them or have come to, to they've been able to localize a certain resonance of consciousness over the millennia or centuries 
and they still carry it and can reveal itself to you even though you have no idea what it is mm -hmm. because it's the consciousness of past generations that are speaking to you through the object. Mm -hmm. And you, by accessing your unconscious, tap in to that conversation that you would have no idea on how to articulate in your present awareness, but, but the, the form brings it to you. Mm -hmm. And then in doing that, you're revealed something by going deeper into understanding what the form is. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's what you're saying. You're like, you're able to tap into like, there's like, and these things exist and carry, the thing is, the core is, the, the statue carries it or the form carries it. The image carries what's been imbued in it through the centuries. Mm -hmm. And if you want to, you know, uh, an, an example of empirical evidence would be look at Joseph Campbell's work in studying myth across mm. cultures across time and you start to realize that there are similar archetypes, similar stories like the whether or not it is a another realm of consciousness, there. Let's put that aside. Human experience over the ages seems to seep across borders and time and stay with us. So the history of humans thousands of years ago is still resonant with us today. So even that alone says, okay, well there is a consciousness out there that we can tap into. It's there, the the archetype of the king or the dragon, or you know, and it's across all cultures. Um, you know, of the hero and all that stuff. So it's there, and you can you you know you can tap into that. I mean, you know, read some Joseph Campbell stuff. You know, uh, but but you know the stories that do transcend time and, and culture. That's there. Whether or not that implies that there is reincarnation and <laughs> a, and higher consciousness and spirit guides, I don't know. But it does say that you can tap into a human experience that seems to have transcended time and culture. Will you come back on this show sometime when you've gone through another level of uh, <laughs> learning about where you are in your progression down this road and come talk more about what these experiences are? I mean, I'd be happy to. Yeah. I, I'd be happy it, to. This was awesome, man. And it was really, it's clear, it's just so evident, uh, and I knew this, but it's so evident that you have such so many deep thoughts on this and that you're in such a deep um, journey of exploration. And it's really fun to just sort of like, like just the lightest tap and you, you are a faucet of information. So um, look, man, that was really fun. And I think we could do it for another hour very easily. So uh, somewhere, you know, in the months ahead, I'll chat with you. Uh, while we're playing fantasy football. And I'll be like, you want to come back? <laughs> um, listen, man, it was really good having you. I mean, an hour goes by very, very fast. And uh, thank you for being so open and for sharing this stuff. You've given me a lot to think about. You've given me a few names to read again. And uh, I hope everybody listening enjoyed the show. Thanks for, thanks for being a part of it. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This was really great. All right, man. I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.